Good morning. How y'all doing today? A little drizzly out there. I got out of the, uh, I was trying to be a real nice husband, you know, and leave quietly and set the alarm when I left. And then I got out there, I realized it was raining, so I went back in to get my raincoat and my, my alarm system went off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> nice try. Yeah, it was great. Guys, turn to uh, Proverbs 8 and 9, and we finish up the prologue to Proverbs today. And uh, this is uh, probably the most important part of the Proverbs, actually, as we've been seeing. It lays the foundation for wisdom. And uh, I'm so grateful that wisdom does not depend upon things like memory. You know, I, I don't know, it, it, you guys that are older can relate to this. You guys that are younger just have this excitement to look forward to. But, yeah, you know, I, I was going upstairs for something. Has this ever happened to you? And I, I got, I actually got halfway up and I thought, now what was it I was coming up here for? <laughs> and uh, I was thinking now, am I going to go back down the stairs or am I going to, since I'm halfway up, just go on and find something that needs to come downstairs, you know? <laughs> and so I, I sat down to try to figure out what I was going to do. And then I, I sat there for a minute and then I forgot, was I going up or down? <laughs> I couldn't remember. And uh, I'm so grateful that wisdom doesn't depend upon stuff like that. You know, I can be very forgetful. Uh, and, you know, I've, you know, now reading Greek and Hebrew, and I'm, I find I'm struggling more and more because I, sometimes I can't remember the alphabet. You know, <laughs> the English alphabet sometimes is a challenge. And we just find we forget all kinds of things we used to know, but that doesn't affect wisdom. And I want to say to those of you who maybe wish you had a stronger um, uh, college experience or you wish you'd gone to graduate school or you wish you'd done this or that, it doesn't depend upon uh, how much learning you have. And some of you who think, well, I'm just not as intelligent as you know, some of the guys I work with and you feel like you don't quite have the IQ you wish you had, doesn't matter. That doesn't uh, determine wisdom. Wisdom doesn't depend upon how much schoolwork you've done. It doesn't depend upon how much IQ you have. It doesn't depend upon how good your memory is. Uh, now, intelligence does. <laughs> but, but wisdom is something that's deeper. It uses your intelligence, but it uses something much deeper than that. And we're going to see that the, the basic requirement for wisdom is that you desire her. You really want wisdom. And you want it for the right reasons. You want it because you really want to know God. You want to be close to Him. You want to represent Him. You want to do His bidding. And if you want wisdom, you're going to get it. And it is to be prized above all things. So no one here is disqualified. It goes out to everybody. When we turn to chapter 8, we come to what is known as the second interlude. And here we're going to see again, just, just like we did in chapter 1 at the first interlude, if you want to turn back to chapter 1 for just a minute, on verse 20, You'll see that wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares and so on. I don't know if you remember that text. But here we have the, kind of the second occurrence of that. Solomon remembers giving lectures to his son. We're going to come to the 12th and last lecture this morning. But before so, we have this interlude that has the same sort of call that goes out to all of us, displaying once again that wisdom is for everybody. Now, in this first section, we're going to see that God compels us to seek wisdom. God compels us to seek wisdom. We're going to see that that call goes out to everybody. Wisdom herself is calling out to you this morning, calling out to me to take her because of the great value that she is. Now, let's look at uh, Proverbs 8. We'll read the chapter. And, um, and we're going to see 
that here we have this case where wisdom very um, graphically uh, becomes a personification. That is, it takes on personhood, speaks to us as a person, and it's very dramatic, and it takes us to the highest uh, summit of the beauty of wisdom in this chapter 8. It's an absolutely wonderful chapter displaying the full glory of God's wisdom. Let's look at it, verse 1, chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates leading into the city. At the entrances, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, gain understanding. Let's stop right there. As a matter of fact, I think if we read the whole thing, we'll lose our, lose our context. Now let's look here in, this first, in these first five verses. This is 1A. Wisdom is available to every man. Wisdom is available to every man. I raise my voice, she says, to all mankind. So it doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how old or young you are. doesn't matter how experienced you are. doesn't matter how much training you've had. She raises her voice to everybody. She raises her voice even today by studying this, the Word. Uh, we're, the voice is being raised again to us. And you'll notice several things about this. First of all, her voice is loud. She says she raises her voice. She raises her voice to all mankind. It's a loud voice. Secondly, it's public. You can see here that she says uh, she goes on the heights. She goes, verse 2, where the paths meet. She goes to the crossroads. She takes her stand right downtown where the crossroads are. She comes to all the crossroads of your life, wherever those are in the marketplace. And she takes her stand there beside the city gates leading into the city at the entrances. She's making a loud voice. And thirdly, it's universal. It's to everybody. So it's public, it's loud, it's universal. So wisdom is not something you go to church to get and to express and leave it there, and then go back out in the world of pragmatism. No, she makes her voice known to you in every part of your life, everywhere you go, at the crossroads of life. So the first thing we want to notice then in verses 1 through 5 is that wisdom is available to every man. Now let's look at verses 6 through 11. Let's read it. Listen, for I have worthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right, my mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are faultless to those who have knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Okay, what we see here is wisdom is not only available to every man, but wisdom is the key to virtue. Wisdom is the key to virtue. If we want to live a just life, if we want to live a righteous life, if we want to live a holy life, wisdom is the key to it. You can see here all the expressions. She will teach us what is right. She'll speak the truth. She will utter words that are just. And everything that she says will be faultless. That is morally pure. So think about this word right. 
Righteousness just means to live in accordance with the law, to conform to the law. So when, when wisdom speaks to us, it always comports with the law of God. If you think you have wisdom and it's contrary to the law of God, think again. That's not wisdom. It's always right. Then she says, I speak what is true. Wisdom always comports with the truth. And truth is simply representing reality accurately. And the Bible is God's truth to us. So wisdom is summarized in the Bible. And Christ himself is wisdom incarnate because he always speaks the truth. And if we're to be wise men, we're going to be men who represent reality. We speak the truth. We don't deceive. We don't dissimulate. We speak the truth straightforwardly. And then she, she says what is just. And we know in the Old Testament that word justice means to have social equity, to deal with people fairly, to care for the poor, to think about the community itself at large, not just ourselves. So there's justice, there's fairness, there's equity in society, and wisdom brings that about. When you find someone who just builds his gates 10 feet high and keeps everybody else out and is only concerned about him and his family, not concerned about society, you know that's not wisdom because she speaks mishpat. She speaks justice uh, for society. And then it's faultless. It's morally faultless. So wisdom is the key to virtue. Now, there is another kind of wisdom, and, and I'd like for us to turn to James chapter 3, and this would be page 2010 in your Bible. And let's look at these two kinds of wisdom. What Solomon is saying is that the wisdom of God is the key to virtue. But there's another kind of self-proclaimed wisdom that is not living by the same standards, and it's available to us every day. It calls to us too. James says in James 3.13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. All right, stop right there. The wisdom of this world that we might call shrewdness comes from envy and selfish ambition. And it leads to disorder and all kinds of evil. And people call that wisdom. He's so wise. They mean he's shrewd like a snake. And there is a shrewdness that applies to the man of God. But it's not the shrewdness that comes from envy nor selfish ambition. And it's not a shrewdness that leads to disorder and every evil practice. So now what is the second kind of wisdom? Look at verse 17. It's the wisdom that comes from above. It's a wisdom that comes from heaven. It is, first of all, pure. So don't call it wisdom if it's not morally pure. Then peace-loving. Don't call it wisdom if it divides men instead of uniting them. No matter how smart, how clever, how shrewd your viewpoints or opinions, if they divide men, it's not the wisdom that God is talking about. It is considerate. It is submissive. It's not arrogant. It is full of mercy. It's not selfish. 
It thinks about other people. It produces good fruit, not disorder. Wisdom, said Jesus, will be known by her children. So you want to know where wisdom is? You look and see where there's order, where there's peace, where there's mutual consideration, where there's unity among men. Then you'll suspect that there's wisdom in there somewhere. You'll know it by its fruit. Wisdom will be known by her children. It is impartial. It's not biased. It doesn't discriminate based on human factors. It discriminates only according to the will and the word of God. It, it does discriminate. It discriminates very carefully between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood. But it's impartial with respect to the things that distinguish men. And it is sincere. That is, this kind of wisdom is true on the outside. It's also true on the inside of the man. So there's integrity. He is not faking it. It is not hypocritical. He is not merely acting. It is coming out of the passions of his own heart, which are sincerely seeking the truth and goodness of God. Now, the reason most people don't have wisdom is because they don't want that. They don't want to live a sacrificial life. They don't want to live a life on behalf of other people. They want to be able to fake it. They want to be able to be insincere. And they want to be able to take advantage of people. If you really are seeking the life of Christ, you can have it. All you have to do is want him. And he, he doesn't, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't play hide and seek. It's on the lower shelf for people like me and you. So that's the point that's being made here. Now you can turn back to Proverbs. That wisdom is the key to virtue. Therefore, when you have real wisdom from above, you will expect to see corporate and individual virtue. When you don't see corporate or individual virtue, then don't expect that you have wisdom either corporately or individually. Let's look at verses 12 through 21. And here we have wisdom in a very dramatic way, taking on personhood, speaking as a person. It's called the personification of wisdom. This is a very famous chapter. Uh, we'll see why in just a moment that it's very famous. But it's a very helpful chapter. Well, let's look at verses 11 through 21. We'll make some comments on it. I, or rather, uh, verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. By me kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. By me princes govern and all nobles who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing wealth on those who love me and making their treasuries full. So we see here that wisdom is indispensable. You can't live without God's wisdom to do certain things. Well, let's see what those things are. First of all, wisdom is indispensable for sound judgment. You pick that up in verses 12 through 14. If you want to be able to make sound judgments, uh, you are going to need the wisdom of God. I remember uh, when I was first asked to be a leader in our high school and having all kinds of situations arise 
that put me between the desires of some students and the desires of some faculty. And I remember just feeling, I was not a Christian at the time. I grew up in the church, and I had a generally Christian framework of thinking, but I wasn't converted. And I remember having the most difficult time trying to figure out when I should side with this group and when I should side with this group and what I should say to each. And one of the things, this was an experience when I became a Christian in my mid-20s, and very quickly, clearly came to me that in committing my life to Jesus Christ, He gave me wisdom for those kinds of circumstances. Because wisdom is pure, it's truthful, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's impartial, it's it's sincere. And so one of the great benefits of coming to Christ for me was to have a moral framework that is built upon historical and present realities and built upon a relationship with the deity. It was amazing how, re- how freeing, liberating that was for me. And I know you found the same thing, those of you who are following Christ, that counsel and sound judgment come to you uh, when you give your life to Jesus Christ. You know, we need judgment here in these next days. Early voting has already begun. We need judgment on how to vote. How do you vote? Well, do you just take the person who hits your, the buttons on your favorite issues? You just take the person who's most like you. You take the person whose wife you like. I mean, how do you decide? Well, you've got to look at a person's character. You've got to look at several aspects of his competence, and you have to look at several uh, policy positions and policy proposals that person has. You have to be able to, to think over these next four years what is in the best interest of our country and the world. And sometimes that's not easy to project. For example, you may have someone whose policy positions line up with you, but who doesn't have competence. You may have a person who has competence, lots of competence, but his policy positions are taking us in a direction that you think will be uh, harmful. It is sometimes very difficult. And have you ever thought about just asking the Lord to give you wisdom? Uh, I'm praying for my one little vote. Lord, just, you know, because life is made up of a series of small decisions. It is. You go, you'll punch the button, cast one vote. The life of the country is based on a series of small decisions by people like us. And your whole life is made up of small decisions like that. So for every small decision you have to, have to make, and one vote out of 150 million, I guess, is maybe a, considered a small decision. But it's a big decision because you're depending upon the Lord to give you sound judgment to make those little decisions. Before you marry someone, you made a little decision whether to ask her out. You made a little decision whether to ask her out the second time. I mean, it, it all, all these things, your business, the big decisions you have to make, all you got there by making a series of important little decisions. Every decision you make for sound judgment uh, comes from the Lord. Secondly, you'll notice in verses 15 through 17 that Solomon, in speaking to his sons, is saying, look, my sons, if one of you becomes a king, if one of you is a ruler... Let me say to you that just laws are made by men who have godly wisdom. That you can't make just laws, right laws and just laws, without wisdom from God. And uh, just last Sunday night in our congregation, we were talking about how you build a political philosophy, how a Christian does such a thing. And at one point, we were talking about uh, just laws and uh, public policy. And 
we mentioned several things. For example, certainly we think that public policy ought to be consistent with the scriptures. That's nice. That's the first thing. Secondly, you ought to look at historical experience. When have these policies been in place and have they worked or have they not worked? And you need to have a historical perspective. You need to have a scientific perspective. Sometimes math or economics or sociology or psychology will suggest certain things about public policy that uh, may not be wise. Is it enforceable? You can have great laws, but if you don't have the power to enforce it, it can just simply lead to chaos and division. Are they affordable? Maybe a public policy that's a great public policy, but we can't afford it, and it'll send us into economic uh, disaster. And does a, does a particular policy have a good effect upon the poor? We ought to always be asking that. People who regularly don't vote at very high numbers, who can't defend themselves, they're depending upon people who can defend themselves to think about them in the development of public policy. And so often Christians don't think about the full scope of what it means to develop good public policy. And we should be doing that because we have the wisdom of God. Because Solomon says here, by me, by me, wisdom, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. And you and your business will be making decisions based on either wisdom or lack of wisdom. And how do you make good decisions? Well, you look at the problem. You look at the various solutions. You play out those scenarios in your head. You're aware of all the interconnected com complexities. And you play those scenarios out. And then you choose a scenario based on upside uh, gain and downside risk. It's important to have the wisdom of God to be able to see the various aspects of a decision and then to have the courage to make the decision. And one of the ways in which I believe I've learned the most about decision making is just get around people who are good decision makers. Get around them. If you're a young man this morning, just be sure that you are getting around men who have been in your business or <clears throat> in civic life or in your churches who you believe know how to make good decisions, and you ask them how they made certain decisions. Get them to unpack that experience for you. Get them to tell you how they made a lousy decision and what they learned from that lousy decision because those are the treasuries in their lives. Those, those are the experiences where they learned how to make good decisions. It was by making bad decisions. So get them to unpack for you the worst decisions they ever made in their lives that still stick in their head that help them develop a framework for how to make good decisions. And for those of you who are a little older, do you have peers that you're still learning from? You know, some of you know that every year I go off with three of my peers and we spend 24 hours together just debriefing each other, praying for each other, holding each other accountable, and consulting with each other. Learning from my peers. Are you still learning from your peers? Are you still listening to them as they describe how they make certain very difficult decisions and how they make small decisions? That's the best way to learn. It's really the best way is through experience. But you can get vicarious experience. And you don't have to pay the price for it. You get it vicariously by debriefing people around you. So go to people that you think are making good decisions and be sure that you are observing how the wisdom of God can work through an individual life because he does it. She does it. She says, by me, kings reign and rulers make just laws. It's by me. So why don't you talk to me and get me and you'll be able to do it too. And then look at that wonderful phrase in verse 17, those who seek me find me. And you find in James chapter 1 verse 5 that he says, you do not have wisdom because you're not asking. And you have to ask, he says, in the right way, not just to spend it on your lusts. 
So don't ask for wisdom in the stock market just so you can be stinking rich. Now, if you want to ask for wisdom in your business so that you can bless other people and live a godly life, then ask for wisdom. And, I, you know, you can see people who have it. One of you gave me an article by Warren Buffett six years ago talking about derivatives. And he called them financial weapons of mass destruction. And he had bought his own security company and had spent $104 million to get rid of the derivatives in that business. He paid over $100 million to divest himself of derivatives, dangerous derivatives. Why? Uh, it's just wisdom. He can see the long-term effects of short-term decision-making. Some of you uh, have mentioned to me that uh, the deceased uh, Burkett, Larry Burkett, was on radio the other day. He still speaketh, yet dead. Uh, and this was a tape of a talk he gave in 1992 about the, the coming economic earthquake. Uh, he, he may have overestimated the earthquake, but there was an earthquake, wasn't there? And like he said, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't know when the earthquake's going to happen. You just usually know where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in the derivatives market because it was obviously unwise. It was obviously taking advantage of certain things. It was obviously not contributing to the economy in a good way. Pray for wisdom. He'll give it to you. Uh, learn from people who are wise. And we don't have because we don't ask. We don't ask because we don't want it for the right reasons. I remember listening to my mother, who's a wonderful pianist, and she plays by ear as well as by sight. And she can just sit down and just play anything. And I remember as a little kid, you know, 10 years old, listening to my mother. And uh, I listened to her one day and I said, Mommy, I'd love to be able to play the piano like, like you do. And she said, no, you wouldn't. You'd rather play football. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> I didn't want to play the piano like she does. I still don't want to play the piano like she does. I can say that, but I don't want to because I'm not, I'm not willing to practice. I'm not willing to put the time in, besides the fact that I don't have the ear she does nor the ability. But I never had the keen interest. I can look at it and sort of lust after it for a moment, but I don't really want it because I don't want to pay the price. I remember one time a speaker, a young woman was in town, and a lot of the women in our church and other churches wanted to hear her speak. And so she spoke, and, she, and her talk wowed everybody. And all the women said, boy, I just want my daughter to be like you. And here's what she said publicly. No, you don't. You know, let me tell you what my parents do with me. And she started to talk about how they went, you know, they talked with her about the movies that she was going to go see. And she didn't get into all the social climbing that all of her friends did. And her parents talked to her about that. And her parents prayed with her and taught her the scriptures and led her in worship. And her parents disciplined her. And she said, you don't want that for your daughters because that's not what you're doing with your daughters. You're basically teaching them how to put the fork on the left-hand side and the knife on the right-hand side and go to all your cotillions and be sure they get in the social crowd and be sure they have enough money to, to impress everybody. And you want to be sure they have the right rich friends so that one day they'll be rich. And you want to be sure that they marry the right guy, which is to you, that he'll have the right career. You don't, you don't want your daughters to be like me because I'm not like any of that. Whoops. <laughs> Watch out. Watch out. And you know what? We have to ask ourselves, what do you really want? If you want wisdom... There is a huge price to pay. It's called your whole life. And that's what Solomon was willing to get. And if you have it, then you will have it for effective leadership. You'll have it for success. Look, number three, it's, 
It's indispensable for success. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. How enduring? Like for eternal life. And I want to tell you, I believe the promises of the Scriptures. And I believe that when, when not only wisdom says it here, personified, but when God says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I believe that. And when he says that I, when, in having him, I'm going to have enduring riches, then I don't worry about whether it's... <laughs> isn't it amazing? 700 points. Ah, oh, well, another dead stock market. You know, we just gotten inured to it now. We, don't, don't even, it, we, we just expect it to be crazy every day. But it doesn't matter. My, you know, I want, I want my treasure to be stored somewhere else. Where's your stored? Here or somewhere else? Be sure you get it stored somewhere else. And you will have enduring wealth like you cannot believe. So we see that wisdom is available to everybody. It's the key to virtue. It's indispensable. Now we want to see that wisdom is divine. And we're going to look at these verses. And this is a beautiful, beautiful poem displaying the grandeur and the antiquity of wisdom. Look at it, verse 22. The Lord brought me forth as the first of His works. Before His deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before He made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when He set the heavens in place, when He marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when He gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep its command, and when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman at His side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in His presence, rejoicing in His whole world and delighting in mankind. Wisdom is divine. First of all, verses 22 through 29, it, wisdom existed before creation. It existed before creation. The Lord brought me forth as the first of His works. I was appointed from eternity. You know, when God confronts Job, and we'll see this here in a few months, after Job had had all of his questions and couldn't understand why bad things were happening to him, God says something to him like, were you there when I set the heavens in place, Job? Of course the answer is no. Then why, why are you thinking that you can counsel me? Why are you struggling with me? I'm, you know, you weren't even there when I made the heavens. But look at verse 27. Wisdom says, I was there when the heavens were set in place. So wisdom is supreme. Wisdom is preexistent. Before the heavens and the earth were created, wisdom was there in God. And then notice, secondly, wisdom assisted with creation. I was the craftsman at His side. Look at this. How exalted wisdom, the same wisdom that you use to make decisions today, was there preexistent before the heavens and the earth and assisted God in making the heavens and the earth. You want to know how authoritative wisdom is? You want to know how powerful wisdom is? You want to know how true wisdom is? Wisdom is in God Himself. It's an amazing statement. Now, why is this such a famous chapter? Not only because we see here the exalted uh, status of wisdom, but in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And through the Word, everything that was made was made. 
Do you see what John is doing? John in the prologue is picking up with Proverbs 8. And instead of Sophia in the, in the Greek, wisdom, or hakmoth in the Hebrew, he uses the word logos in the Greek, or debar in Hebrew. He's, he's using the logos concept, which was contemporary to his own time in Greek philosophy. But he's really using the categories of Proverbs 8 to say, now you, you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. When I speak of the logos, Christ being the logos, existing before time, because here you have it in Proverbs 8. So he uses, John uses very similar language. There was other extra-biblical literature uh, that also did the same thing, but Proverbs 8 is a, is a classic example of it in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. And then John says, let me tell you what happened with wisdom, with logos, with the word. It became flesh. Everything John had to say in the prologue about the Logos is said about wisdom, except for one thing. It became flesh. And that was the grand revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that here in His person, in His very being, is the incarnation of the ancient wisdom of God, and that it was Christ who was there before the heavens were made. It was Christ who is the craftsman at the right hand of the Father, who made this universe. Christ was the mediator of all creation, as well as the mediator of redemption. And Christ is the source of all wisdom. This is the reason the Apostle Paul says, you can go to the philosophers, you can go to the textbooks, you can go to the people who are claiming to be wise in this world. But he says the wisdom of God is focused down on one man and one event. It is this incarnate Christ who laid down his life as a bloody sacrifice on an old wooden tree 2,000 years ago that is the very crux, the very focus of all the wisdom of the universe. And for those who have come to understand it, they realize Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. It's an amazing thing, gentlemen, that this great wisdom is available to us in Christ. That's the reason that to have wisdom, we have to have Christ. How do you expect to have his wisdom without having him? We need Him in order to have His wisdom. And then He builds that life of virtue and that life of service and that life of love and humility that enables us to take the intellectual content of wisdom and put it into practice. So here in Proverbs 8, we have the beautiful description of Christ Himself. Now, notice lastly in chapter 8, if you look at verses 32 through 36, you see that wisdom is salvific. Whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. That's what that text says. So he basically ends that interlude with calling upon us again. He says in verse 32, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. And Solomon once again speaks on behalf of wisdom, pleading with us. Now let's turn to, to Proverbs 9 because here we've seen that God compels us to seek wisdom, but here God calls us to choose wisdom in this 12th lecture. And this is the conclusion of the introduction to wisdom. Before Solomon starts to lay out, and we're going to see this between now and Christmas, before he lays out all the themes of wisdom and how to apply it in practical everyday life, the use of your tongue, rearing your children, relating to your, your wife, dealing with your business issues, uh, dealing with society, 
all the issues, dealing with your emotions, all the issues that are going to come to the fore in chapters 12 through 31. He basically says, look, you have to make a fundamental choice. I can spread this table for you, and I can put out all these Proverbs out here for you, and so you can be a better informed fool. But it would be better if you would make a determined choice at this point. And so that is what Solomon is saying to his sons. The most important thing about making decisions is to make a fundamental choice that you want the wisdom of God. Because until you do that, all the Proverbs will not help you. They'll only tell you what a disaster your life is going to be. And that's no fun to read a book like that. But if you will make a choice for wisdom, you'll see that it will tell you what a blessing your life is going to be. Now, this chapter 9 is laid out in three fundamental stanzas. That's what I want us to see. In the first six verses, you have wisdom inviting you into her house. In verses 13 through 18, these are all equal stanzas, equal numbers of verses, you have folly inviting you into her house. So what chapter 9 is here at the crescendo of the prologue is this mighty battle between two women trying to get you into their house. And in the middle, verses 7 through 12, we're going to see the crux of the matter. What determines which choice you're going to make? So it's like a sandwich. It's a wisdom sandwich. You've got wisdom here, you've got folly here, and you've got the heart of the matter right in here that's going to determine your choice. Uh, and so let's, let's look at, first of all, a, your choice is between two rival invitations. And that's verses 1 through 6 and verses 13 through 18. And you'll see the exact language used in verse 4 and verse 16. Let all who are simple come in here. Remember, the simple are the airheads. Those who are kind of a blank slate, they, haven't, they don't have a bias for, for wisdom or for folly. They just kind of don't know where they're going. They're just drifting. Let all those who haven't made up their mind come on in here. Let the, all who are simple come in here, she says to all those who lack judgment. Both. Common invitation from both parties. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, they are similar invitations. Now, let's look at both invitations. We'll read them. Verses 1 through 6 and then 13 through 18. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. That's a big house, by the way. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who like judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Now jump to verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who like judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. So we see, first of all, they are similar invitations. First of all, they're prominent invitations. It comes from the highest point in the city. Both of them make reference to be, being at a high point in the city. What do we mean by that? Well, the temple, the temples, the pagan temples were built on high hills. Where was the Jewish temple built? On the hill of Zion. So the places of worship and prominence were on the hills. 
And they're both on a hill. They're both prominent. They're making their invitation to you. They're both very communicative. They get the message out. They have big campaign budgets. She sends out her little maids to talk to you. The other one just shouts in a very loud voice, very communicative. They're alluring. Both of them are alluring. Wisdom is alluring. Folly is alluring. And that's the reason that Solomon, in his teaching of his boys, he's saying, look, guys, it's a lot like sex. Your wife can be alluring, and so can the mistress. And he's saying, this decision between wisdom and folly is a whole lot about the sexual experience. And, he, he, you know, he gave him that big lesson on sex. And now he moves right to wisdom and folly because they're, they're all women. <laughs> they're alluring. And you'll notice that one says, come and eat my food and drink the wine I mix. And the other one says, I've got sweet water and delicious food. Come on in here. And they're both totalitarian. Leave your simple ways. Leave what you were doing and come in and be with me. And the other one says, come in here. Come off the road that you're on and come in here. They're both claiming total dominance over your life. You're not going to get both of these, folks. You're, only going to get, you're either going to be a simpleton who hasn't made up your mind yet, just wandering around, airhead, or you're going to choose one or the other of these. You cannot have both of these women, only one. Now, they are also dissimilar invitations. First of all, in manners. Notice in verse 3 that wisdom sends out maids and she calls to you. The woman, in verse 13, is loud, undisciplined, and without knowledge. One of them respects your intelligence, sends out maids, sends out messengers, speaks to you one-on-one, expecting some questions, expecting some interactions, some dialogue, expecting to have a reasonable conversation. The other one respects your space, respects your independence as a decision maker. And I would suggest to you that's the way that Solomon is proposing that wisdom works. She's very respectful of the way she made you because wisdom was God's assistant at creation. So she made you, she knows how you are, and she is going to come to you and reason with you. On the other hand, if you look at the manners of, the, of folly in verse 13, she's loud, undisciplined, without knowledge. She just shouts at you. She doesn't really take your mind into account. As a matter of fact, she doesn't care a whole lot about your mind. She wants your body so she can get into your pocketbook. We've already seen that with adultery. And folly is the same way. She wants your body. Wisdom wants your heart and your mind. And you'll see that their manners appeal in different ways, depending upon what they want. Secondly, in preparations. The wise woman has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has actually made preparations. She, she prepared it. She mixed it. She paid for it. She's setting the table. But with folly, if you look in verse 17, come on in, I've got some stolen water. And you know what? When it's stolen, it's a lot sweeter. You didn't have to pay for it. And I've got some wine that we found from somebody else and you know what? Sweet. It's always sweet when you rip somebody else off for it. So you can see the very different preparations that have been made here. At least Eve in the Garden of Eden tried to convince Adam that it was a good thing to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This woman doesn't even try. She just says, it's stolen. Come on in. That's fun. 
It's very brash. And folly will always do that to you. It'll lure you based on taking advantage of somebody else. And in the results, in one case you will live. and the other case, guess what? If you check the basement, you'll find a whole bunch of dead bones of people just like you that came in there and got trapped. And we talked about being trapped the other day. Trapped for your destruction. And that's exactly what folly does. So you can see that they're very similar invitations to folly and to wisdom on one hand, superficially. But fundamentally, in their essence, they're very different invitations. And the wise person will see through it. Now, lastly, in verses 7 through 12, we're going to see that your choice is determined by your spiritual disposition. If you want to have wisdom, there has to be a spiritual formation in your heart to receive it. You have to have an appetite for it, and then you have to be able to receive it and put it into practice. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. Let's read. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through me your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. I want you to notice three things about the spiritual disposition that is able to receive the eternal and ancient and infinite wisdom of God and actually put it into practice in an individual human life. Here are the three things in this text. In verses 7 through 9, your humility to receive instruction and correction. Gentlemen, this is number one on this list. Maybe number two is more fundamental, but this is more frequently violated. The lack of humility to receive instruction and correction. I can usually tell when someone is going to live a successful life, they're teachable. And I can usually tell when someone is on a road to unfruitfulness and to mediocrity at the best. And that is they are defensive, they're unteachable, you cannot correct them. That's exactly what Solomon is saying to his sons. Sons, you're going to be kings, you're going to be princes, but let me tell you something. You've got to be able to receive correction. And if you're a prince in the kingdom and you can't be corrected, this kingdom is in bad trouble. And you are in trouble and your family's in trouble and this dynasty's in trouble. So he says the big decision between wisdom and folly has to do with how you react to instruction and particularly how you react to instruction that is correcting you. I remember listening some years ago to a a message that Chuck Swindoll gave to pastors on a pastor's retreat. There are probably a couple hundred of them out in the woods somewhere. And he began to list the, the, the most common causes of failure in Christian leadership. And he was speaking to pastors. And he said the number one cause is the inability to handle criticism. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what Chuck Swindoll thinks. But I think he's got to be pretty close. Verse 7. Got to be pretty close. And when I see failures of ministry, failures of leadership, 
in the marketplace, so often the number one cause is that someone was not able to handle criticism correctly. Now, there are lots of reasons psychologically why we have trouble handling criticism. Maybe your dad did nothing but criticize you. And the last thing your emotions seem to be able to tolerate is another critic. It just triggers everything in you that resents your dad and his lack of support for you. Some of you are struggling with low self-esteem, and the problem with criticism is it's not what they think about you, but it triggers what you actually think about yourself, and you can't stand it. And so you have defense mechanisms to survive emotionally so that you can't hear anything, any messages coming in from the outside. But let me tell you something about the wisdom of God. It's powerful. It's the power of God. He created the heavens and the earth for heaven's sake. He can certainly take your broken emotional life and your broken relationship with your own father or other things that have existed in your life and break through that and bring health and healing to your bones. He'll do it gradually. He won't do it completely until you get home, but he will begin the journey now, and you can do this by the wisdom of God. If you want the wisdom of God, you've got to be able to receive criticism. Now, does this mean you agree with all your critics? Does this mean you act like a doormat? No, of course not. That's not receiving criticism correctly. Let me give you about four or five things in order to receive criticism correctly. We've got five minutes here. Number one, be sure you listen very carefully to your critic. Most critics have some truth and some falsehood. Some truth and some falsehood. Now, if you want to, you can critique everything false about what he said and by that critique, then therefore discount everything that he says. That's a huge mistake. We'll get to the part that's false in just a moment. You want to listen very careful, carefully for the nugget that's in there. Some people in the church, for example, that bring me criticisms, they may not be very mature Christians. They may not be very well trained. They may not be able to articulate as rationally as I would if I took their same argument to make their case. But if I'm listening very carefully, I find the nugget that's in there. And I actually give them better reasons to make their argument than the reasons that they're making their argument on. I say, honey, you had not heard the half of it. Let me, let me tell you what you should really argue here. So look for that nugget. Don't discount the nugget because the husk is there. Don't get thrown off from a really good piece of advice that may be tucked in 90% of crud. So listen carefully. And especially if you're hearing something two or three times, Listen very carefully. Maybe you didn't hear it just right the first couple of times, and now you're perfecting what that criticism really is. Listen carefully. Secondly, agree on what you agree to first. In other words, if there's 90% falsehood, 10% truth, focus first of all on the 10% truth and thank the person for it and say, I can see what you're saying in this in this aspect of what you've said. And I agree with you, and I take responsibility for that, and I think you're right. It's one of my weaknesses, and I'm working on it. I appreciate your prayers and your help, and I agree on that. Thirdly, help the critic make a difference. Get the critic networked with some people who can actually do something about it. 
I had someone come to me one time and said, where, where are the Hispanics in our church? I don't see any Hispanics. I said, well, there are a few, very few. But you're right. We haven't done a very good job of reaching out to the Hispanic community. And he was a little heated about it. And I said, well, how many Hispanics have you invited to church? Well, of course, none. And I wasn't trying to run him down. I was just saying, you know what? I think if the Lord's put that burden on your heart, you need to convert that burden into a ministry. Otherwise, you're just sour grapes. Come on now. Let's go. I, I agree. We haven't reached out to Hispanics, but it seems to me you're, you're part of the answer. And you're not going to be an answer if you don't convert your criticism into a ministry. So let's get, let's get converted. And I helped that person reach out to Hispanics. So realize if you're wise, the energy someone's putting into a criticism, you can, like a judo expert, wham, turn it into something very helpful. Judo is taking the energy of your opponent and applying it to your own side. And that's what you want to do with, you're not, not to their disadvantage, it's to their advantage. But it's to the devil's disadvantage. So you take something, all that energy, and get it mobilized. Now, fourthly or fifthly, wherever we are, be sure that you do not flatter your critic or mislead your critic by making them think that you agree with everything when you don't. Now, you don't have to outline everything you disagree with your critic on. Some of it's immaterial. But things that are material, and the wise person knows what makes a difference here, where we differ, and you need to say, now look, I agree with you over here, but here I don't. And I just want you to know why. And you give your critic rational explanation. That way your critic has more information to keep criticizing you if he doesn't agree with your rationale. You're, you're disclosing. You're being open with your critic. Now, some critics are chronic critics and destructive critics, and those you handle differently. Uh, there are some critics that, that I will handle differently because they're chronic and they need to be confronted, and I'll go right for their hearts, and I'll challenge them. But for those who are generally considered reasonable critics, you show them where you disagree and why. That then allows them to continue the dialogue if they wish, and you will continue to benefit from those who rebuke you. So you don't cut them off. And lastly, and very importantly, you thank your critic. You may not be feeling very thankful, but you ask God to give you wisdom to be thankful because everybody needs critics. And everybody particularly needs critics they listen to and they listen very carefully. So you'll find your humility to receive instruction is vital. Very quickly, and, and these last two we'll just mention. Your fear of God. We've already talked about the fear of God when we've talked about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. But obviously, your worship and awe of God is absolutely essential for a disposition that's going to receive wisdom. You have to be in awe of Him to receive the fullness of His wisdom because some of His wisdom comes to you counterintuitively. You don't intuitively agree with what you're learning about God. You have to train your intuitions to change. And the only way your intuitions get changed is out of awe and reverence. And then lastly, your desire for eternal life. You want to be with Him forever? Well, be with Him now. Because the, the one you're going to be with forever is the one you're getting to know now. If you don't like Him now, you know you're not going to like Him then. So get heaven in your heart. Long for eternal places. And you'll find that that eternal wisdom comes in 
temporary life. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the wisdom that you give us. Thank you for its beauty and grandeur. And thank you for its availability to us simply through repentance and faith. May we have it today to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.